Welcome, friends, to episode 299 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm writer Luke Elliott. And I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And this week, we sit down for a creative conversation with author Paul Tremblay. So, Paul Tremblay is the award-winning author of novels like A Head Full of Ghosts, Survivor Song, and The Cabin at the End of the World. The latter was recently adapted into the 2023 film Knock at the Cabin, directed and produced by M. Night Shyamalan, which Ink to Film covered a little over one year ago. So welcome to the show, Paul. Thank you. Glad to be here. Oh, uh, I, I missed that episode. Uh, maybe I'll have to go back and listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> You'll get a taste of it here yeah, a little yeah, bit. I yeah. think. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on, Paul. It's, it's definitely an honor to have you. Just so much go, must go into an adaptation process like this, and, and we're interested in your level of involvement and, yeah. and to hear your thoughts on it, good, bad, and otherwise. No, I'm, I'm happy to be here, and you will get all of those, all three, good, bad, and otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly good. Awesome. Okay. So uh, if you are new to Ink to Film, listener, viewer, um, what we usually do over the last seven years or so is break down book to, and their film adaptations. We usually do an episode on the book, episode on the film, do a deep dive, talk craft, that kind of stuff. Um, but this creative conversation episode is the first in a new series where we're hoping to sit down with the creators who uh, actually are behind the things that we're talking about and explore their contributions to the final product. Uh, so also just a heads up, this conversation will include spoilers for both The Cabin at the End of the World and Knock at the Cabin. So I wanted to kick things off uh, by asking you, Paul, what your favorite adaptation is. Oh, you sent me these questions too, and I, <laughs> I, I, I swear I thought about them. I, I do have an answer, uh, but like you know, Luke and I were just talking, we we're both getting over a week of COVID, so <laughs> if, I, if, I, if I sound stupid, I'm still blaming COVID brain. You know, one of my favorites is The Dead Zone. I think both the book and, and, the, and the movie are excellent. I think they're pretty close. It's one of the few I might even prefer the movie, but I think that's more a reflection of I had I saw the movie first, so that's how I was introduced to the story. You know, I like that they're both close, but they also have things that are different, but they they work in concert with each other. You know, they're very sort of close related siblings. The Dead Zone. So that's it's an older one, but it jumps. You know, it comes to mind. That's Stephen King adaptation, right? Um, yeah. It's one we haven't covered yet. We we he's a frequent author that we we yeah. talk about on our pod um we well, just did misery best, for sure yeah misery is great too for sure yeah which by the way i you know absolutely love the book i liked the movie but it was one where i thought the book was better so and we, that's something we do every time we, we kind of at the end weigh in on whether or not we thought you know ultimately the, the movie was the better version or not um so so what in general when you're looking at adaptations because i'm sure you've seen many over the years um, what do you think makes a good adaptation? Like, what are you looking for? Especially if it's something that like you're a fan of the book and you're yeah. seeing an adaptation for it. Yeah, that's a hard question because I think I've lost some objectivity to that question now that, you know, I've been fortunate enough to, to have some books published and, and even one made into a movie. So I definitely sort of skew toward the side of, uh, of the writer, um, or of the book. You know, I want something that honors, like everything obviously can't be the same. But it has to honor, to me, the, the biggest thing is the characters. It has to honor sort of their emotional experiences in their lives. And if there's going to be some sort of change to a character, it really has to, it has to be there. It can't just be to, to make like a Hollywood happy ending or sometimes it just feels like change for the sake of change, from my point of view. Um, you know, and I, I think, you know, that's just the, the laundry list of unsuccessful adaptations. Um you know, or something like Jaws, <laughs> which is so different than the book. And I think, you know, that's always like the fun for me, like party, you know, conversation argument is, you know, what's the, you know, short list of movies that are better than books. And and if anyone says the cabinet at the end of the world, I'm going to, 
punch you in the face. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I won't punch you. Uh, I'll be very sad. Uh, but no, but like to me, Jaws is like the shining example of this movie is so much better than the novel it came from. I think it's successful because like the, the characters so drive that movie. I, Roger Ebert you know, says it you know better than me. He said like Jaws, and it might have been Siskel too, but one of them had said that, you know, the original Jaws has like these, ama- you know, four amazing characters. It has, you know, it has obviously Brody, it has Quint, um, and it has Dreyfus's character. Again, COVID brain, I'm, I'm spacing on why. I don't know why. It's like a movie I've seen 50 times. Hooper, sorry. There Hooper. Go, yeah. uh, and even The Shark would be like a fourth one. And they, and they talk about how each sequel, <laughs> like it goes down by like one or two characters they even care about. And they're like, by the time you get to like three or four or four, like The Shark isn't even interesting. Never mind like <laughs> the other characters. So yeah, it always goes there for me, which I think a lot of times... I don't know, like I'd be interested in what James thinks on that as a filmmaker, you know, coming from the filmmaking perspective. I think that's probably the hardest thing to transition is a lot of the interior life of the characters is what makes up our experience as a reader. Like, how do you get that across, you know, in film? Um, and I think that's where, you know, for, for readers who love a book, that's where the ball gets dropped somehow. Like, I don't know what the easy way to, I can't tell someone how to do that, <laughs> but that's something that I look for, you know, if I've read a book and I and I do dare see its adaptation because so many i won't even like ah, i'm not gonna i don't want to see it <laughs> i mean you brought up uh the dead zone and there's two artists with very strong visions right like you have stephen king mm-hmm. he writes in a very certain mode and then you right. have david Cronenberg, who's known for his body horror he's known for that specific style and i think some of the best adaptations are when the you know that essence of the of the story remains true whether the plot necessarily is doesn't matter as much but like you said, true. Maybe maybe the characters go through a similar kind of journey, and by the end, they are in some way changed to the vision of the of the ad- adapter. So like Cronenberg's The Dead Zone, like he that's not a Stephen King story as much as it becomes a Cronenberg film. And I think when when an artist like that is able to put their mark on it and stay true to the source is when book readers and general audiences alike just you know res- respond well to that adaptation i, I agree i i could add one more thing luke or james before you ask <laughs> my other my favorite adaptation is probably watership down I, I can't believe i didn't say that oh first. wow yeah especially since i just got like a the black rabbit of inlay tattoo on my upper arm uh, <laughs> that's the, cool. you know the 1979 movie and, and the book are, are both perfect to what you were saying like this version is never going to be made but osgood perkins was for a while attached to do a head full of ghosts and i got to read a draft of his screenplay i think it got close to happening but it, then it all fell apart and his screenplay was so different than the book but i really liked it i just thought it was beautifully written which is i guess maybe a weird thing to say about a screenplay but it was just so moody and strange and even though like the stories were so really wildly different i thought it still stayed true to sort of like the emotional tone of the book. And I was surprised. Like I thought I was going to really not like it when it was going to be that different. But mm-hmm. again, that's just based on reading the screenplay. And I'm sure it would have been beautiful. I mean, because Oscar just makes beautiful movies. I'm bummed to hear that that's not going to happen now. Yeah. <laughs> that is, that is, that's sad. Um, Cause I've been looking for, I, that was your first book uh, that I read that I, that I fell in love with and was hoping oh, thank you. still holding out hope at some point we might, we might see that. Adapted, yeah. I mean, it, it could happen. Book. It just won't be a thought good. Uh, that's yeah. fair. We are about to come up on our 300th episode where we're going to be doing this whole like Hall of Fame induction or we're going to inter- you know induct some of our favorites that, that we've ever covered. And so this is on our mind, right? Like what okay. makes a good adaptation? And so often we see the difference between filmmaker and author. And like sometimes you get something like The Shining where the filmmaker who's making it clearly has a different idea of what yeah. kind of story he wants to tell. 
And yet I still I still like The Shining as a film. I know that that can be controversial too. with a lot of Stephen King fans. Um, and then you can also see ones where like the film and the the author uh, are like kind of on the same page and it ends up being really um, authentic to the book. Mm-hmm. And, and that works too, like The Silence of the Lambs comes to mind where it's actually mm-hmm. pretty similar. I'm saying all this to set the stage, hopefully, for this conversation we're going to have, because we want to get into it with you yeah. about uh, about Knock at the Cabin and Cabin at the End of the World. Uh, like I said, we covered this about a year ago. Um, we did an episode on your book where uh, both of us absolutely loved it. Um, and we, we talked about all the reasons why. I, in that episode, talked about how you said, I think in the liner notes, mm-hmm. that um, it was a challenge to yourself to write a kind of a book that was in a, like a horror subgenre of the invasion horror. Yeah. Because it was like a subgenre that you didn't really enjoy that much. And so you challenged yourself to write a version that you would enjoy. And I felt the same way about that because I don't really like those kinds of horror mm-hmm. stories either. And so I was skeptical going into it. I'm like, is this going to be <laughs> something I enjoy? Um, but I kind of trusted you because I had read Head Full of Ghosts that I really liked, right? Um, and I was so glad to say that at the end of it, I was really impressed with it. And I thought well, you. you wrote it in a that. way that was like the only way to make this story work. Um, and then I was at the end of the episode, I said like, well, we're going to go see this movie now. And I'm worried <laughs> <laughs> uh, because it felt like such a difficult balancing act to get it just right to make that work for me. Um, and we'll, we'll get into the movie. But like, I want to focus in on the on the book first. And talk a little bit about the story behind writing this novel and and the challenge you gave yourself. You know, it's funny, like for that book in particular, and maybe even a handful of ghosts, but that one, I mean, started with like a filmic sort of like thought because it was like, oh, like I, I was just doodling in one of my writing notebooks and I drew a little cabin. It was like, oh, and it, I was I was fishing around for ideas because I, you know, I was off book deal and I was in the middle of trying to pitch my editor just you know i picture something that she didn't like so i'm like okay i'll pitch something else yeah so i, I thought of the the home invasion subgenre you know which had you had said like i'm not a huge fan of and partly it's because i do find them so upsetting it, you know you know there are ones that i i really adore like you know something like all the way back to was it don't be afraid to dark is that the alan arkin so don't be afraid of the dark no it's oh. not familiar anyway it's audrey hepburn uh, she's a blind woman living like in a basement apartment in New York City, being tormented by Alan Arkin. It's that's a great home invasion story uh, movie. You know, and there are others that I do like, but uh, yeah. So the the challenge was okay. You know, how would you write one? And since we're talking spoilers, like I sort of knew it was going to be this family because it kind of fit like the previous novels that I had written. Like the two prior novels featured a family, yeah, sort of in crisis, in distress from inner and outer forces. Um, and I thought, okay, like, how am I going to, you know, like every writer thinks, at least at the beginning, probably, how am I going to make this difference? <laughs> it was like, well, we've all seen the home invasion story where, you know, the invaders show up and do awful things to the family. You know, and we've seen the versions plenty of times, like Straw Dogs, et cetera, where it gets flipped. You know, the family starts, you know, doing the awful stuff to the invaders. It's like, wow, what if the invaders showed up and started killing themselves? Like that's that's really weird. <laughs> like why would they do that? And that that was sort of like just how the very sort of humblest beginnings, I suppose, of that story. So even though it was like a reaction to film, like when I was writing it, I was trying to imagine I was writing like a stage play, just because just for the mindset, because I kind of felt like you know it's going to be inside this like one room for most of the book. Like that's going to be hard to do. I needed to maybe think less about movies and more of like a play. Because even the movie, I'm sure I'm not naming correctly. Don't be afraid of the dark. I first saw it as a televised play on HBO. So I don't know, like I was thinking about that a little bit too. 
I, I just looked it up as wait until dark. Wait until dark. Oh, yeah. I'm gonna. I'm hopefully it's COVID brain and not like early onset something. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, I don't know. I wanted to feel like so. I started writing at the summer of 2016 during uh, the presidential primaries and you know, sort of the the looming <laughs> reveal of Trumplandia was very much you know on my mind, and I wanted the book to feel like those sort of anxieties that you know so many of us were feeling with this being sort of filmic in your mind, I wanted to ask, like, do you ever write in the mode of some cinematic scene? Is this something that you could already see as being adapted? Um, and then also outside of the invasion horror genre, subgenre, were there any other kinds of stories or, you know, authors, works, movies, works of fiction that you wanted to infuse other elements of into this, this home invasion story? Yeah. So like, I never think in terms of like, what would this be as an adaptation? Uh, I don't know. I, I, it's hard enough to, to write a novel yeah. <laughs> you know, and have it be good. Not think about that. Uh, if anything, I think more writers and I try to think this way too, is like, no, like you should write something that would be really hard to adapt. Like you're trying to, there's a reason like this needs to be a book for a reason. Like if someone else, I mean, I, I don't believe anything is unadaptable. I mean, there are endlessly creative, you know, you know, filmmakers, I'm sure anything could be adapted. Um, so I don't worry about that part of it. That said, I, I find myself often thinking about a lot of like, you know, I obviously favorite books and favorite things that I've read in books, but also favorite scenes. And and I love to sort of reference a lot of like filmic stuff. Um, Headful of Ghosts is a wash in it. But uh, well, like the opening of Cabin, I, I kind of do both. Like in the first chapter, the first paragraph is the first paragraph of The Lord of the Flies, sort of rewritten or repurposed. And then when uh leonard and Wen are sitting uh, on the on the grass catching grasshoppers in the beginning i very much had in mind james wales uh frankenstein the scene of frankenstein sitting with the little girl except they're not sitting by you know in my book they're just sitting on the grass and not by a pond no like he was like even when i finished the book i was like i, I fantasized more about oh if i could get like someone to draw some illustrations i want someone to do a <laughs> leonard and Wen illustration that looks just like you know frankenstein and, and the little girl that he chucks into the pond we can spoil that movie too, right? Yeah, yeah. We've covered that on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. While we're kind of talking some of the details that we read in the liner notes, we mentioned in our in our book episode how kick ass we thought that was and how like oh, you know uh, that was very much appreciated. Uh and, and in some ways the things that didn't necessarily go into the liner notes that that did uh remain ambiguous were also like speaking volumes in ways as well. Cause there were things that you let us in on and things that you didn't. And and yeah, we just thought that was really cool. Oh, thank you. Oh, I should have uh now I'm like answering questions you guys probably know the answers to since you read the liner notes. I don't know. I always love when see. I mean, so much in horror starts with Stephen King or even writing for Gen Xers. But like, I used to love when Stephen would have his short story collections and have like those stories notes in the back. So I don't know. I just thought those were fun. And so then with the head full of ghosts, my publisher said, "Hey, what do you get for extra stuff for the paperback?" And they let me do the liner notes, and they they just kept asking for it, and I was happy to provide that. I absolutely loved reading the liner notes. Um... But I did notice there were certain things you didn't get into. And yeah. uh, this is my opportunity to okay. sort of start getting into those with you. And like we said, we're full spoilers. So this is your final warning if you're listening. <laughs> um, we're going to get we're going to start talking ending and we're going to start talking about where where your book dramatically is different than what we ended up getting uh, in the film. Right. So at a certain point when you're writing this thing and you're plotting it out, you, you start to have to figure out. Okay, there. The these these four people have arrived, and they're saying the world is going to end unless you kill one of your three, either right. one of the couple or when. Um, at some point, they're going to have to make a decision to either not do it or do it. Um, and 
I kept thinking, like, as I'm reading this, I'm like, either way is going to be not satisfying to me. Like, I don't <laughs> want it to go either way. And, like, somehow you thread that needle and you find a way to where, in my opinion, their world ends when Wynn is accidentally killed, seeming to be accidentally killed. And because of that, they're sort of empowered to make a decision where they reject the choice itself. Right. And they reject the premise and they say, even if this is true, that the world is going to end, we are not going to kill one of us. Yeah. Um, and I love that you were able to, at the same point as like, we're, we're pretty sure something's happening. We're like either, either something supernatural or maybe the world is ending, but there's just enough doubt that you leave in there. Um, mm. There's just enough chance that, that there is a coincidence occurring. There is something going on. Cause like, yeah, sure. If you turn the news on and you watch for long enough, it will start to seem like the world is ending. I, I, I've noticed that, especially, you know, yeah, yeah. 2020 and beyond. <laughs> so I just love that. And, and the way you were able to, to end in an ambiguous note where you don't quite provide the answer. And I know that that probably drives a lot of readers mad, but I, for one, love that and thought it was the only way that this story could work. Thank you. I, I thought so too. I, I way underestimated how much people were going to be upset, like that they weren't <laughs> told straight out if an apocalypse was happening. And, and I, I really have a hard time like sharing that same headspace <laughs> with the other re with readers who feel that way. Sorry, I, I just don't get it. Especially, I don't know. Obviously, I'm, you know, I'm not very subjective because I wrote the book. You know, and I, <laughs> you know, I can, <laughs> you know, I can say like, you know, whether. Whether like the ending is objectively good or bad, I don't know. But I can tell you that for me, I considered what I feel like is every possible ending. You know, I'm not like a deep blue chess playing AI where I can where I can actually physically test every ending, but I felt like to the best of my brain's ability, you know, I, I tried to work through every sort of possible ending. Um, and the one I wrote was the one that felt the most honest and real. I'm sort of curious for all the people who hated on the ending of the book, if they saw, you know. If they watch the movie, they really like, oh yeah, that's the ending I wanted. Like again, I would be really like, I don't know, maybe, maybe I, th I think some people might re sort of <laughs> revisit like their response to the ending. But anyway, yeah. early on in the writing of it, you know, I had to write just from professional obligation, I had to write like a summary because uh, they said, hey, if you write us 50 pages in a summary, we can make an offer. So the, the summary, I, I probably, I summarized it pretty close the first two thirds up till Wednesday's death. But at that point, I I knew sort of what the end would be, but not really. But initially, I was thinking, okay, I knew when I was going to die sort of right off the bat. And some of that was like the logic of plot to me. It's like, as you described, Luke, you know, these people, the four invaders are going to kill themselves off one by one. There becomes a certain point in the book where the reader thinks, okay, nothing's going to happen to the couple or, or the kid. We're safe. You know, and I did not want that, you know, for, for, for a variety of reasons, you know, for that story. So... I knew that killing of one was going to be a, a huge shock to the system. My my big worry, and it still might be the case, is that that the sort of emotional climax of the story happens there as opposed to the end. Anyway, initially, like I thought maybe one of the dads would shoot themselves because you could go really bleak with that. Like one of them shoots himself. And because I, I would stay ambiguous, yeah, there's no apocalypse happening. But was it because he shot himself or or was it because there was no apocalypse to begin with? I mean, I think that would be a really... A really sort of brutal, uh, nihilistic ending. Trump got elected, and I, at that point, I had only written like fifty pages. Like I can't do that. I also think if <laughs> I also think once I had written sort of when scene two, I think I would have changed it, if not for that either. But like I was like, no, I I need, I need a defiant fuck you hopeful ending. And to me, that's what I hope the ending feels like. 
is is again how Luke. I'm so honored, like how you described it as yeah, the the, the two dads refuse. They said this is immoral. We, we we refuse to participate in this. This is wrong. Whether or not like there's some supreme being controlling this, if if they are, they're wrong. This is this is immoral. We refuse. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> and like, I don't know, to me, I find that hopeful. Like, uh, to, you know, to go back to the movie, like one of the things like Knight and the Hollywood folks would keep talking about is like, oh, we needed a more hopeful ending. Like, dude, <laughs> your, your ending yeah. is so way more dark and depressing, I think. So uh, many, so many problems to get into. With we talked yeah. about the layers of, of uh, the ramifications of what kind of the movie is saying, yeah. what the moral of the story is at the end. Definitely gets lost and gets really dark. And for myself, for my, you know, my morality, my perspective on the world was really fucked up, you know? Yeah. yeah. No, and for, I mean, I, mean, I want to say politics aside because you can't brush it aside, but even just like from the very, like the basics of the machinations that, okay, here is uh, Andrew and when. They just let their dad, you know, shoot himself. They just let Eric die, essentially, right? So, like, at the end of the movie, it's like, okay, they have to live with that. They have to live with that. Like, he, you know, they allowed him to do that. And they also have to live with the fact that it's pretty clear that there's some infinitely cruel supreme being of the universe yeah. that killed all these thousands of people just yes. to have them, like, kill their dad. Like, I, yeah. I find that utterly terrifying. One, like, I mean, I find that truly bone deep frightening. Um, yeah. And so like, that's hopeful to you. Like, I don't, yeah. I'm weirdly attracted to the idea of writing a sequel story to the movie where when is like 19, 20 years old and she has joined like this, like death cult where like she's scheming to kill God. Like, I, yeah. I think that's what uh, she yeah. would do. Well, and Luke brought up in our film episode, it, it feels like the invaders were right at the end yeah. in the film, right? Like they, yeah, they were right all rooting, along. You shouldn't be rooting for the invaders, I yeah. don't think. And on a rewatch, I think you have to. You're like, man, hopefully before they, they kill themselves and convince the family to kill somebody before all these atrocities happen to the rest of the world. Yeah, it, it, it becomes, uh, yeah, because I watched it, you know, prior to, to, to this interview and uh -huh. um, I, I got angry all over again. Um, it's one of the few times where I feel like I actually get kind of angry about the changes that were made. That doesn't happen to me a lot. I mm. feel like that's a very frequent reaction from people to, yeah. to adaptations that change things. Um, but usually I'm not that attached. Um, but this to me was such a fundamental betrayal of the ending of your, of your novel that it made me mad. <laughs> yeah, and there was a there was a message behind your book, and as much as it's one of the darkest, uh, most disturbing like horror novels I've read in a while, especially because of what happens to Win, like that is absolutely like rips your guts out. It's so bad. Yet the in like the message of the book is still to me a hopeful one, and and the message of this movie I don't even know if if like they even thought about it. It, it was just like, it seems to be that the religious extremists are right and that yeah. I guess we should just believe them in case they're right. And one of these gay parents needs yeah. to just die to, to appease this this evil god. Um, and then, yay, we're all happy at the end, I guess. I don't know. It was, uh, it, we'll get into the movie more, but uh, I wanted I wanted to focus sufficiently on the on the book before we got into that <laughs> sure. because again I loved I love this book so well, thank you I wanted I, I wanted to, to to make that clear. Speaking of writing, um, I would be remiss if I didn't ask. Um, a lot of times authors say that getting an adaptation of their work is like one of their dreams. Mm -hmm. um, was that something you had thought about le leading into this? 
and then like what was the experience like and and how did it line up or not line up with with that i mean I, i'd be lying of course i dreamed like oh it'd be amazing if someone made a movie i mean and part of it frankly would be like how much money are they gonna pay me if that happens <laughs> um that part of it, it's not as much as you think but I, i'm not complaining <laughs> at all like it allowed me to take a year off from school and pay for not all but a chunk of my daughter's college yeah, so I mean, you sort of idly think about like, oh, a movie, you know, that'd be really cool. So with Cabin, you know, I had gone through sort of the the option experience before that um, with the head full of ghosts, you know. So when when Cabin was optioned initially, it was uh, January of like 2018. So at that point, head full of ghosts has already been under option for two and a half years. So I already knew <laughs> that there was going to be a lot of waiting involved, like. You know, when you first get something option, it's like, oh, my God, this, you know, because the producers are always so excited and like, we're going to, you know, we're going on this now. And that's like three years pass or whatever. So I knew the waiting side of things. I, I learned that with like prior experiences. The rest of it was I didn't have I had zero contractual say in anything, um, which, which why would I have, especially, you know, in 2018? No, I mean, not that I would automatically get it now, but I'm trying to ask for a little bit more if something else were to be optioned, but also at the same time, plausible deniability is a nice thing to have if if the movie ends up <laughs> not being very successful. But, you know, and I'm, I'm I'm sort of happy with this movie. Or uh, I mean, I like it, but I hate the ending as the short version. Uh, anyway, so it was like, it got optioned. It was waiting around for like yeah, a year and a half. And then I, I saw a draft of a screenplay by uh, Desmond and Sherman. Um, and I didn't love the screenplay. And it wasn't, it was certainly not all their fault. Uh, I know that it was the second draft and they had to add a lot of stuff like producers wanted and add it in. The ending was sort of the same, but like not. <laughs> so so I, I, I was curious and I don't know if this is something that you picked up on, but I when I was thinking about this being adapted, I was like, yeah. I think the death of when is going to be the biggest sticking point because they're not going to want to have the child die. Um, it was, right. I, I think, probably one of the bolder things you did as the author, because that's a hard thing to ask any reader to even stomach. Um, so I was like, it's really interesting that they chose to adapt this novel when that's such a big, difficult moment. Yeah. Um, is is Shyamalan going to be able to lean into that and actually do it? Um, it didn't seem like it. Do you think that that change is like what spawned this whole difference in the ending? Because if you change Wynn's death, it kind of has a snowball effect, right? It's definitely a fulcrum for sure. Like, you know, if you change Wynn from dying, like you can sort of, at least I can rationalize as an apparent, okay, like she's alive. Like I'm going to try to save the world for her kind of thing. Like I, I can, I can move closer towards the decision that they made in the movie, but not necessarily how it was handled story-wise. But you know, hundred percent. Yeah. Well, I will say, like, I, I tried to, like, I did talk to to those screenwriters, super cool guys, um, and you know, we did talk about the importance of Wednesday's death. So the early drafts had that happen, and I, I know there were a couple of uh, directors attached initially, and they were like gung ho, like, no, this has to happen. <laughs> you know, and I was talking to those directors actually quite a bit. I don't want to say behind the producer's back, but like they were on board with like trying to put more of the book into everything. But I think when they went out to find answers, the finance was like, you're killing a kid. What? Mm. Which I don't know. I mean, a lot of movies, I mean, it's not like it's never happened in a movie before. I, I don't know. Uh, I think audiences are more prepared for that kind of thing, especially these days, right? Like we see the beginning of the very successful it adaptation from Stephen King, like a child yeah. dies immediately. But I guess it's also, it's like, it's Stephen King. So I don't know. Uh, <laughs> right. You know, there's yeah. a built in obvious. They don't feel like, 
Sure. Oh, no one's going to come see this because Georgie dies in the beginning. Like, I see. Yeah. <laughs> I think they knew, like, if Georgie doesn't die in the beginning, people are like, like, what the hell? And tear up the, the theater. <laughs> Admittedly, there is a difference between an early death like that before you've had time to really fall in love with a kid versus right. yeah. at the end, which is, it, it's a difficult moment. I've talked to people because I'm a defender of this book and I talk about it all yeah. the time. And I've talked to people who are like, oh, when I got to Thank that you. part, I stopped reading. And I was like, oh, that's really, you should go back to it. Like, like I try and convince them, but then it's hard to convince somebody to, you know, that that wasn't a breaking point for them because that's, you know, their own personal experience. Sure. Um, yeah. And I'm like, yeah, that is a tough moment and I get it. Um, but to me, that was just a bold moment that I was impressed that you were able to pull off because if you do that, you have to justify it. Just for, I wanted, I mean, I wanted to hurt. I mean, yeah. and you know, no moral judgment on like, if someone gets to that point and they're so upset, I totally understand that. Like my wife stopped reading my books after I had full of ghosts because <laughs> after kids, she was like, I just can't read stuff with kids in danger. And there's a lot of kids in danger. But, like with when I really tried up until that point in the book, she has more point of view pages than any other character. Like it was important to me that she was a living, breathing, important person, you know, and not just, you know, a, a sacrificial sort of body for the story. Like, no, this hurts. <laughs> this hurts everybody involved. Even like in the book, like obviously like Leonard is, you know, broken up about it and, and I thought exploring all of that after Wednesday's death was really interesting as a writer, but uh, so like, I know with like, I don't want to put words in Knight's mouth, but uh, uh, I know he was really much more like when he read the screenplay and then read the book, he was much more like the thing that drew him was the choice. Like he, he just couldn't stop thinking about the choice. That was the thing to him. Like, you know, he even told me like, uh, I'd be sitting around at dinner with the family and be like, all right, we have to sacrifice somebody. Who would it be? Like, who would we do? Like, man, dad, chill out. Like, <laughs> it's a really weird dinner conversation to have. Uh, so I know for him, that was the thing. And when he talked about like, as a thriller, you know, when dying, does it work? And like, okay, I wasn't really writing a thriller, but yeah. So whatever, like what you were saying earlier about like the filmmaker and the, and the writer having different versions of, of the story vision. So he, he clearly had a different vision. My only disappointment, if it is a disappointment, is just how much it sort of leaned into Christianity. Cause I mean, that was sort of like the anti-reason why I wrote the story, like totally opposite. Like I certainly was not trying to promote any Christian sort of have beliefs had, or, or things like had that. readers or, or, or people come up to you who think that that is like your message. No, Does that happen no. At all? okay. I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, I, like I really try to avoid reading anything online, but like, so I, very rarely people will come up to me at a book signing or something. Certainly it's not happening on the streets. That'd be really weird. Uh, <laughs> you know, to talk about that part of it. No, it seems like to me, most people were upset because I didn't tell them that apocalypse was happening or not. Hmm. You know, and there was also sort of like the Trump Trump folks were upset that I, there was a gay, you know, married couple too. But that, I mean, that's so easy to dismiss. Um, so, so what went into that decision? Some of it was like, hey, a head full of ghost features, sort of like, you know, purposely like, hey, you know, a stereotypical white suburban family and disappearance of Devil's Rock had a single mom. It's like, oh, if I'm a family, I don't want to have like the same kind of family again. And a uh, cabin was my seventh novel, and as a, a part-time math person, <laughs> uh, uh, numbers are a little bit important to me. So I felt like a really important number, like my seventh novel. It's like, oh, you know, my very first readers besides my wife were uh, some family members that are, are also like some of my best friends, like we vacation together and stuff like that. So my cousin, Michael, and his husband, Rob, um, they're 10 years older than me. And my aunt, Mary, who's like a second mom and her wife, Debbie. And those four were my first readers. But I was just writing terrible stuff. Um, 
but they were the perfect first readers because they would be supportive, but they would point out like, Hey, we don't think this works. They weren't afraid to, you know, to say that, and, you know, some of my favorite memories of like early writing life would be, Hey, I'm going to their apartment in Boston. We're going to play games, you know, have drinks, but you know, we'll, we'll talk about this weird story that I wrote for some reason, like inexplicable reason. Um, so I kind of like, I was like, Oh, I want to honor like their experience somehow with, with the, uh, you know, with the two dads in this book. So I brought back my cousin Michael as the first first reader for for Kevin, and his response was really interesting. He was like, he was adamant. There's nothing supernatural happening here. <laughs> um, I was like, oh, because I figured most people would lean that there was, and to have like my first reader like really adamantly be like, nope. Like, oh, interesting. Okay, that's cool. I I wanted to ask you. You mentioned M Night Shyamalan and some conversations you had with him. Um, did you get any sort of updates as changes were happening or was it sort of like once the script was locked and then pr principal photography was taking place, was it sort of just like, you know, all quiet for you until the, the, the release of the film? And then also just out of curiosity, were you able to yeah. visit the set at all? Um, and, and at that point, were you, were you realizing some of the changes maybe coming into effect? So yeah, I this might be easy just to answer through like a somewhat of a timeline. So uh, summer of 2019. I'd heard like, oh, he might be interested as a producer, uh, which was kind of weird. And like the directors who didn't end up directing it said, yeah, we had this weird call with M. Night. And it was funny that he made it sound like it was going to be like this Christian movie. So I was concerned. <laughs> but then I was like, it's like you always hear like names attached to things. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's not going to happen anyway. So like a year or so passes. But then it became, oh, no, he wants to direct this. He has a, a film deal in hand with Universal, but he has to finish old first. Mm -hmm. So it's like, okay, well, like that sounds promising. Uh, we'll see. You know, so when did old air? Was it the summer of 21? I think it was. I think, I think somewhere in there. About yeah. the summer of 21. I only remember that because I noticed like I had, again, zero information, but I started seeing Knight post on his Instagram. Oh, I'm working on the screenplay. So I knew it was the cabin screenplay. And, you know, so then I heard info from the agents like, hey, you know, this is probably going to go spring 24 or spring, sorry, spring 22. Like it'll start pre-production. And so I had my first, actually an only phone call with him in November of 21. I can't remember if, I think Batista might've been announced at that point um, and just the title of the movie, but that was it. Um, well, that was it for really the whole time <laughs> in terms of like they never mentioned the book until the actual movie. Oh yeah, I, I remember seeing you on Twitter <laughs> trying to get like, I wrote this book, like trying yeah. to get some, some attention uh, on that. Yeah, so that phone call was very cool. It was very nice. Uh, you know, he was very complimentary of the book. And I, I really appreciate how upfront he was about like what he liked, you know, how we really liked the book and what he was going to change. So I knew then like, hey, you know, one's not going to die. One of the dads is going to shoot himself. So I knew like the parameters. Yeah, so I had a lot of time to get used to that sort of. <laughs> and actually, frankly, at that point, it's like I, I kind of knew that what was going to happen. Like, I think any Hollywood, certainly not a studio movie is going to go for an ambiguous ending. I just don't see it happening. Not A24, sure, like independent mm -hmm. places, but studios, there's no way. There's just, I've talked to, I haven't talked to everybody, but I've talked to enough producers and related to studios that I, it would really take like a special someone to be like, we are yeah. going to, and really that's the, the only reason this got made is because Knight wanted to make it. He had a deal in hand. He had his own money. And actually I kind of really sort of secretly, not secretly admire that like basically he didn't have to answer to anybody else. What he wanted to do, he did, which seems more like a life of a novelist, I think. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. Then maybe a filmmaker. So anyway, 
uh, at the phone call, heard it was going to pre-production, he would text periodically in that early, right before pre-production, like, hey, where'd you get the idea for the for the weapons? And I, I would send him some links to images and stuff. Uh, he asked like a few other questions. Some of that were like, hey, do the, <laughs> do the invaders, you know, does one represent hate and one represent kindness? And no, <laughs> no, that's <laughs> not, not what I was thinking. Um, he actually filmed that. I think it's on the cutting floor. It might be on a DVD extra where there's a scene where they're talking about like what they represent or something. I think there's I mean, some it, reference to that. I thought in the movie, may, maybe it's still in the movie, but it was more like like a reference. Yeah, it, it was more explicit. <laughs> yeah, like they explicitly shot it where Batista's standing in the room explaining to the to the mm. family like this is who we you know what we represent. Oh boy! But they ended up cutting that smartly. Yeah, so I would get some text, and then it became a pre-production. I did get to go to set for a couple of days in May, and it was the interior set, which was in Philadelphia, and like a warehouse they built. They built a cabin for all the interior stuff. That's cool. I mean, so that was amazing. Like those two days were that was like, you know, one of the one of the wild moments for sure. Just like because I'd never been on a set like that. Like I like I've been lived in Boston. I've seen like oh they're filming outside, so you watch for a second or two, but never like like in a set like that. And like, I just remember thinking, holy shit, this is $25 million. Like the army of people, all yeah. the stuff that they built. Um, yeah, that was wild. And just like even walking into the cabin for the first time, I walked through the a producer took me to the front door, you know, there's, you know, Groff and Aldridge tied to chairs. <laughs> there's little Len, you know, there's everybody else. There's Batista, you know, here's night. It was just so weird. And like, you know, walking, Hey, everybody you shook your hand and then like got whisked off to like a side room. <laughs> that was like really it was very cool it's, but it's just so weird that seems um, surreal just because yeah you you made that <laughs> you know what i mean like this came from your head and now you're in it you're standing in it yeah <laughs> you know, so when i was on set everyone was super nice super accommodating yeah i'm very thankful for that even like i i got to i sat like for most of the first day i sat in the same room night was sitting in as they were doing stuff so it was really kind of it was very cool to watch like he wants to watch on a monitor as it's being filmed as opposed to live because he wants to see what it looks like on screen. Watching the 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 DP work, he seemed like a madman, like in the best way. Just wasn't eating. <laughs> it was just like all about setting up these shots. He's the same DP at, that Dave Eggers uses. You know, learning that the script supervisor is sort of the glue that holds everything together. He, yeah. Rob Foglia, I think is his name. Super nice guy. So like he had everything. Like he had to... I don't know. Like I didn't know that about that job. <laughs> all that continuity and everything. Yeah, all the continuity. Like, unbelievable. Like, yeah. Like all the set number or all the scene numbers you would have to write down. And the and the actors were were the sweetest people. Super friendly. Day two, I, I hung out with like Jonathan, Ben, um, Sabrina, <laughs> and uh, the character named Sabrina. I'm sorry, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm blaming COVID. So I you know I hung out with like four or five of them, and you know I wasn't sure if they'd read the book. I didn't ask them, but they 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 said right away. It's like, oh, we really love the book, and asked me questions. And no, they they were great. That was uh, it was a lot of fun. He really did put together an incredible cast. That that was really cool to see yeah. Batista in the role of Leonard. And I just saw Jonathan Groff on on Broadway. Uh, Merrily we roll along, and he's such an incredible performer. Like, yeah. and seeing him in in this film as well was was so much fun. And especially when right, like, what an ask of of a young child like that. Yeah, yeah, I have to admit, I was nervous around when, not that I had much contact with her, certainly not on set, because I kept, because her mom would have to be there, right? Because she's so young, like child labor laws. Yeah. They actually had two wins. You know, they had a, a stand-in because she could only work a certain amount of hours, so they would have this other 
little girl there just for when, when she's not in the shot, but in the shot, like you for can coverage. see her face kind of thing. Right. Yeah, yeah. I'm just like, oh, has the mom read the book? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. So like that was super, that was May. And then like the next six months, frankly, were really weird and frustrating because I felt like we were promised like an announcement about, hey, we're doing an adaptation of this book, which never came. Then like most movies, you get like a deadline or a variety. Hey, this this movie is an adaptation of this book. Never happened. Still waiting for that, uh, wow. by the way. <laughs> they um, did have a lot of his name all over it, right? M. Night Shyamalan all over the marketing. Yeah. Which, yeah, it's this movie. I mean, that's what sells. Like, he's an automatic, like, 100 million, or, or in this case, 50 million worldwide, you know, based on what he puts out. You know, and some of the other frustrations were, like, you know, the trailers would drop. They would have the screenwriters mentioned and him, but, you know, no book by, like, in, a, in a, my contract. It sort of felt like, you know, without getting too granular, like, you know, the contract, it sort of says if you mentioned <laughs> this, you're supposed to mention that. But like any sort of contract, it was tied to like billing block language. So the workarounds, like if you leave off the billing block, then you can just mention other things, but like the screenwriters get to go on, they have to be on there because they're protected by WGA, you know, novelists aren't protected by any unions, mm -hmm. uh, obviously. I guess I'm curious why they wouldn't want to, to tie it into your built-in audience as well, right? I, yeah, I'm trying not to speak for other people. So, I mean, I have my theories, but like th at that point, that'd be me telling you like what Sure. I don't think that would be fair, like ascribing, even though I do in privately ascribe uh, motives for behavior. But I, I had a producer tell me on the phone once, uh, if news about the book came out now, it would hurt the movie, was what I was told once by a producer. And I was like, wait a minute, you mean <laughs> the adaptation of my book would be hurt by the news of the book? Um, Interesting. So that seems tied to me to to Shyamalan's reputation. Yeah, and... I think I think some of it they were worried about the win thing. I think part of it, I won't describe anything else. I think part of it was, oh, if people read this book and see this, you know, when dies, like people go, Oh, I don't want to go to this movie and watch her die. I, I think that's a part of it. What percentage? <laughs> I'm not sure. But then, you know, uh I got to go to the premiere. And I, you know, I mean it almost sounds like you got to go. Like I have writer friends, I'm not going to out them, who like in their contracts say you only get one ticket to the premiere, oh my God, and you got to really? get there yourself. Like in some big writers, wow, like Hollywood's wow. fucked up, man. <laughs> uh, <laughs> my when I signed with my current rep in 2019, he said to me, "He's like, I'm going to pitch you as a creator because no one out here respects writers." Uh, <laughs> and I thought he was joking. I laughed. It's like, oh. No, <laughs> you know, and then what, you know, seeing obviously the strength this year, I was like, okay, I see, uh, I, I see it. Uh, but anyway, uh, but you know, Universal is very cool. They, you know, four tickets, my wife, my two, you know, late teen kids. And, you know, they put us up in the ho same hotel with everybody else. And that, that was where the, the movie was. So, I mean, that was, you know, just like the, the set visit, that was a really sort of fun, magical night for sure. Uh, and, and Knight was very gracious on stage when he introduced the movie, talked uh you know quite a bit about the book and like you know he even opened his like yeah usually the movie's my idea but this time it wasn't and he talked about the book which is very cool of him um yeah and then the party afterwards was just surreal like <laughs> you know watching my daughter and Dave tattoo talk about their tattoos and <laughs> uh, that's awesome yeah and, you know and jonathan groff again is like one of the nicest guys uh all, all of them were super nice and they're like when's mom wanted me to take a picture with her and i'm still like did you read the book? <laughs> yeah, she was super excited that one was on the cover of the movie tie-in edition. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that that, that was very cool. Uh, 
you know, those moments. So it's just not making excuses because, you know, I, those frustrations that I've, I've mentioned, and I still have some other ones, but there was, you know, the weird sort of realization, like <laughs> how low on the, and I'm not saying this for a pity party because I'm, I'm, I've way, I've made, sold way more books than I ever thought I would in my life. Um, but like, just like you get so absorbed with like your publishing life. And then you go to this film set where I mentioned 25 million. Part of the reason why you can sort of understand, like they're making the wrong decision. It, it was wrong to be, they should have promoted it, not just for like, they should have promoted the book as a part of it, not just because I wanted it to, but because you would have had more people go, I think. But I can also see where like the the number counters, like not even just night, but like, you, you know, the salespeople at Universal, it's like, hey, we're spending 25 million on this. How many people read Paul's book? A high, like a highest estimate possible. I'm going to count libraries and pirated versions of the book. Let's say 300,000 people read it. I'd say that's a very high probably estimate. If all 300,000 people buy a ticket, what's that? Three million or four and a half? And not all 300,000 are going to buy it. And that's like sort of kind of almost nothing compared to the 25. So, I mean, that has to be part of the calculus because there are so many other movies that don't talk about the book that it's adapting. Like people get weird when it's, they have to cover their ass right like if, yeah. if you make so this 25 million race. movie that fails like your job is toast i i sort of get that part of it so i don't know i, I don't know why they wouldn't be like let's blame the book like sure blame the book <laughs> we talk about this all the time when we're because the question always becomes how much should we care about the fans of the book and how much yeah you know what i mean like how much should they be in should be accounted for and to us they're the they're the like super fans that if you can do something that will at least please them somewhat, they're going to go out and tell all their friends. So yeah, like right. that number might be smaller, but they're the ones who are diehards. They're the ones who are going to be giving you that word of mouth that you want so much. So we try and say like, you should be thinking about these readers a little more, but we also grant that like, when we're talking the numbers that these films are trying to reach, it's always going to be a very small percentage of those people that even read books, period, much right. less read this book hearing about some of the the risk involved right like the studios they like maybe an indie studio like a24 could, can t can take some of those risks because they make a, a movie for two three million but when you get to 25 million it's it's like to not make that money back tanks careers like m night Shyamalan right. had went through a period where his movies were tanking and then sort of built back up his reputation and kind of stuck his neck out there on his own reputation so to see like what producers and what people think is less risk but will make money is always mm -hmm. such it's really interesting like you said calculus to figure out because we we are like how much should we ascribe blame to the director when the yeah. when the producers you you were saying earlier like the producers were wanting to put certain things in the script along mm -hmm. the way and so it's just like so many so many cooks in this kitchen so like one of the things i i really admire about night and i you know to go back what we, you know what you were just talking about like what what I do like about this movie, it's this is his story. This is his version of the story. This wasn't uh, test screened. This wasn't, <laughs> you know, given a thousand notes from a, you know, it might have been given a thousand notes, but I can guarantee you that he probably listened to very few. Like this was his thing. Like I wish more movies were that. Like I say all the time, why? why I, I know there are some producers and I, I've worked and talked to some who are, we're very good with story and stuff like that. But I've talked to more producers that like, after I'm done talking to them, like why in the world, <laughs> like what training do, to, does producer X have in story? Like have they ever written them as they, have they ever made a film? Like, 
you know, that's not to say like only writers and directors can be experts in story. I mean, that's clearly not the case. I mean, film critics, et cetera. But I don't know. Like to me, it's like, why can't we just leave the story part to the, the writers and the, the directors and producers? If you have a great idea, we'll take it under advisement. <laughs> I hope my, I, I hope my producers aren't listening to this. <laughs> I um remember at the end of the movie thinking that there was an opportunity here, in my opinion, for M. Night Shyamalan to do something that I thought would be kind of transgressive in following your book, because you have, a, in my opinion, kind of a transgressive ending that works. And I, that was the little bit of hope I had, because I said in our book episode, I was like, I could see maybe an A24 adaptation of this, mm. but a big budget movie like this, that's getting, you know, ads. I think there was like a Super Bowl ad and I was like, oh my gosh, this is getting a lot of buzz. Yeah. But maybe, you know, maybe M. Night Shyamalan can do it because he's known for taking big risks and taking big swings. Um, so I'm, I guess I'm kind of glad to hear that it was his decision and like you don't think it was some outside influence because I was a little worried that like yeah. he got gun shy or something. But that doesn't sound like that's the case. I, I don't think from what I could tell uh, in conversations I have with you know some of his producers, um, I think it, it was all him, even like the, the screenplay. And, again, and some of this is my memory is foggy on like what the screenplay I read in 2019 and that I didn't read his screenplay until early June of 21. So there was like two years in between. Anyway, there were some things he took from the original screenplay, but most of it was his. And in fact, actually, he put way more of the book and even the book's dialogue into the into the movie, oh. um, which, you know, at the very beginning, I mean, that was it was like so fun, cool to hear. Like when I was sitting in that theater for the first time, <laughs> you know, seeing it. It's it's it came out almost just about a year ago, like right now, and like you know, like it's weird. It's like I'll forget about it. Like oh, that happened, and it seems so far away. Uh, but now it seems like <laughs> it was yesterday that we've been talking about it so much. Uh, We're bringing yeah. it all back up. Um, so so I wanted to, to see if there was like some positives we can really focus in on. Was there any moments in the film where you were like, wow, they really nailed this scene? Like this is exactly mm -hmm. what I would have wanted if I could imagine it being done. My favorites by far were, were like the, I thought all the performances were great. Uh, I thought all, all the actors sort of got the emotional sort of lives of those characters. I thought they were all great. And that, that was definitely my favorite part. I think Batista is fantastic in it. Like when he was first cast, I was like, Oh, like, <laughs> you know, in the book, Leonard is described as like early to mid twenties, you know, sort of like a corn fed Miss Weston and looking kind of dude, you know, like not, you know, a 50 year old tattooed giant. But I thought he, I thought he was perfect for Leonard. Like he had vulnerability and he was scary. You know whether or not like um, the ending obviously went off the rails for, for my tastes. But I thought he was a fabulous Leonard. And Leonard, um, you know, and I thought the opening scene was great. I, I thought that was, uh, you know, him and when there was a lot of tension, a lot of close face, a lot of, a lot of close uh, face face shots there. But yeah, uh, they're doing a lot of those like Dutch angles too. Or you know, yeah. make it seem really creepy. Um, I, I I liked I loved his performance too. Uh, I thought that was one of my favorite Batista performances I've seen. I felt like he he led the movie in my opinion and was really yeah. the standout. Um, and I I was you know excited about him when I heard that he was uh, going to be Leonard. I, I thought this is going to be a good one. And yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree. I don't I don't agree with what they did with the story, but but the casting I thought was was excellent. I liked a lot of the visuals too. Like there was a scene. I don't think it's in the book, but I mean, it's sort of in, in the spirit of the book where uh, Sabrina is talking to Eric alone in the bathroom. And they're, they're sort of like 
there's a mirror there and there's just like a lot of yellow from like the the sun going down it's like oh that's like a really cool you know visual that sort of fit sort of the emotions that you couldn't necessarily like you can hear them talking but it was the kind of thing that i felt like what we mentioned earlier that visual helped portray what these characters were thinking and feeling Reminds me of a little note from your liner notes where you, I think you said that the color yellow became a little game you were playing with oh, yourself, yeah, or yeah. that would that would associate with the character death. Right. Both of those characters die, so I almost yeah, made I it into the movie. That. <laughs> yeah, you know what's the other thing? I don't know how, what you guys think. Like one thing I haven't been able to figure out because I mean he definitely did it for a purpose. I'm not sure what it is. When Eric is sort of like, we're not sure if he's actually seeing the future or if he's just like visualizing the future for his daughter. Right? There's a scene where his older daughter is driving, like gets into the car on, on the driver's side and Andrew gets in the passenger seat, right? You know, they're in the car driving. You know, and the movie ends flipped with Andrew and Wen, like in those other seats. Uh, I think there's something there with the, the car at the very end and the car from that sort of future vision. It's, I mean, it's probably like a very minor thing, but like there was something that's like, oh, I think he's doing something there. I think it's kind of cool, even though I can't really verbalize like why he's doing it. <laughs> That's interesting. I haven't, I haven't thought about that. That's, that is yeah. a good point. I don't know. I've also been forced to see, you know, I've seen the movie four times or probably, yeah, I would say forced. Like, you know, I saw the premiere, <laughs> I, I rented a theater for family and friends like a week later and that was fun. That's cool. Yeah. I, I mean, I hadn't, I'd have to see it again to kind of analyze sure. that a little more. I'm, I'm curious too, when we're talking about the cast here, were you, were you surprised with Rupert Grint as a, as a Redmond, uh, just knowing <laughs> the Harry Potter background and everything like that? Yeah, that was a surprise because, I mean, Redmond's described as like, you know, as beefy, brawny, not not Leonard, but like, you know, much shorter. But yeah, I thought he did well with it. I, I Him, I didn't get, I, I barely met because he'd already died by the time <laughs> I got to set. I will say when I was at set, I got to see the dailies of his death. They had way more, way more gore to it. We were surprised that this movie was rated R at the end of it. I was like, mm. it didn't feel like a rated R movie. It felt like it was actually pretty tame. It's funny, like I'm someone who's usually so squeamish when it comes to to, to gore on uh, on film. I'm not that I'm like against it. It's just like it, like it. Ah, oh, that that gets to me. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, and I came out as like, oh, they they needed to show more. Like, and not just because I wrote it, but partly because like in the story. Well, I guess it also makes sense for his version of the story. But like in the book, the reason why I got super gory with it, you know, because in the book, you know, for people who haven't read it, it's you know when. When people get hit by those weapons, it's a blow by blow. Like you, it's not, I don't hold back. And it's not just because I'm trying to go for like a cool, like body count gore thing, uh, which is fine if you're doing Evil Dead 2. Like this wasn't Evil Dead 2. <laughs> but anyway, like I wanted to really describe those deaths in detail because that was a way to remind the reader, this is what the invaders are asking of the family to do. This is what they're asking them to do. This is what, if you believe something supernatural is happening, this is what the universe is asking them to do. Like, and hopefully by the end, you're like, no, like they should not be doing this. I think I would hope, <laughs> I don't know, I would say hope most right thinking people. I will say that <laughs> most right thinking people are like, no, you can't, like that's wrong. It's it's just wrong. You can't, you can't do it. So Redman, you were talking about, um, and he's such an interesting character too, because he's an important one in the story that you wanted to tell, because he is the clue, the like, it's like the smoking gun. Yeah. That maybe everything isn't as it seems. The fact that this was the guy, it yeah. seems, who committed this, you know, hate crime. Um, it was so important in the book. And and I went like, what is the purpose of it in the movie? I don't get it. Um, and it's even revealed to be true. Yeah, it is revealed to be true. 
what is why what does the what does it matter at this point well there was a point in the movie where like it'd be interesting because you've seen the whole thing but like if you go back and rewatch it like knight keeps the ambiguous part for a while like like longer than i thought he was going to uh even after reading the script like i felt like oh yeah this is actually so i think that was still there as a part of yeah um and one of the things i thought was really interesting um and again, he he got to do like filmic shorthand. Like, so when I wrote this book in 2016, 2017, I felt like I had to describe at that point in time, even though it's not that long ago, I had to describe like targeted individuals, like how they would gather online. Like it wasn't this ubiquitous thing where in the movie, all he had to say was chat room or, or <laughs> yeah. no, it was message, message board. board. Yeah. We didn't need any other explanation. Uh, I thought that was like a really cool I, I thought that was really interesting and, and actually really well written on Knight's part, just right there. That's all you needed to say. And everybody in the theater knows, oh shit, that these people are conspiracy theorists, maybe, right? So here at the end, uh, I wanted to find out if there are any future adaptations either in the works or that have been discussed, if there's anything you can share, uh, anything we can look forward to. Uh, I wish I could share. I mean, I mean there, there are things that are under option, which is great. You know, some are like super early. I felt like Survivor Song was was really close, but then just had a setback. So it still it still could be a thing, but now it's a lot further away than it was than I thought it was. Like just even like two months ago, and a head full of ghosts is always perpetually <laughs> sort of on the line. Uh, it has an important two months coming up, uh, so we'll see. Okay. It could even be like oh, like at the end of these two months, maybe it's actually going to shoot later this year, or we're starting from scratch. So uh i don't know we're really excited for that one and hopefully it gets adapted so we can cover it on the podcast yeah no thank you well i appreciate that yeah um yeah i mean it seems like a minor mir- i mean so much stuff gets put out there but from my point of view it's like it seems like a minor miracle that anything gets made oh yeah, um, yeah. like i don't know how it gets there but for me it's like it took someone like knight who had all the say all the power and even like puts his own money sort of behind behind his mouth, you know, like, yeah. I don't mean that like disrespectfully, like, you know, he, he's investing his own money into a lot of his own movies, which I, you know, really respect. So foresh- foreshadowing that you're, you're writing a book or you have written a book called horror movie that's going to be coming out. For the YouTubers, you can see your picture. <laughs> that looks awesome. I'm excited to learn about that, but I wanted to ask, um, it, it seems to me and, and reading head full of ghosts, I think back this up, like you're a big fan of the genre. Like you, you watched a lot of horror movies, you know, the genre in and out. Um, and just like putting it out there into the universe. Yeah. Are there any filmmakers that you have always thought would be just a good pair with your work? Like this, someone who seems like they would, they would get my style and, and would be a good person to adapt my stuff. I've become friends with Andy Mitten. I don't know if you've seen Andy's movies, but he did Yellow Brick Road, uh, Witch in the Window, and more recently, uh, The Harbinger. Not the terrible Blumhouse Harbinger, <laughs> but the XY, XYZ films Harbinger. Uh, I actually had the honor of writing, like co-writing an essay with Nadia Balkan in the Blu-ray for the Harbinger. Uh, I think Andy and my sort of sensibilities fit perfectly. So I, I would love for him to get a shot. Otherwise, you know, like also a friend, Alejandro Bruguez, I think would, you know, I would really would love to work with him. You know, so these are people I've gotten to meet, like otherwise, like, you know, sort of like pie in the sky, I loved I love Saint Maud so much by Rose Glass. You know, I would love to see what you know she would want to do with like you know one of my stories or books or or Jennifer Kent as well. But yeah, I'm I'm not choosy. <laughs> 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 not that not that I have the choice either. Like 
you know, like, as I'm sure you guys know, like for the, like, you're not presenting, Hey, like you pick the director. It's like, no, there's like, Hey, this is the direction we got. Like, okay, great. I mean, I probably shouldn't be making those decisions anyway. So <laughs> I just wish someone would let me make or add songs to the soundtrack. That's actually what I dream about. Is That'd be like, cool. Do your own little, if I had awesome a movie that I could do, like, yeah, like if I could pick the song that rolls when I wanted to pick the song that rolls, not that I asked, but like I, I had a song in mind that I wanted for the end credits of of uh, Cabin. Do you mind telling us what that what that may have been? Oh, it would be Future of the Left's uh, The Hope That House Built. Okay, cool. Yeah. I'm not familiar, but I'm definitely going to check it out now. <laughs> yeah. I see like the opening bass line would be perfect. Like if it, you know, if it cuts out where it cuts out and then you hear the very simple bass line at the start and the lyrics very much fit with, okay. somewhat fit with the story. It's one of the, in the book, it's one of the epigraphs at the beginning. Awesome. <laughs> so so horror movie you've written a, a book called horror movie which i'm sure is going to be a little confusing when talking about it. <laughs> it's a novel it's a novel, yeah. <laughs> novel yeah. um but th this seems like it's got to be leaning into your love of horror movies right and and oh, can you sure. tell us a little bit about the book and, and i mean in some ways it's i feel like the setup isn't like totally different than like a curse movie sort of story you've heard before but basically i'm gonna make this sound really confusing too but it's not trust me so uh, in like 1993, there's these, you know, people in their mid twenties, a small group of people, uh, you know, shot like a art house, disturbing, pretentious, uh, horror movie, my favorite kind. <laughs> um, and you know, cause you know, something happened on set toward the end, the movie never made it to screen, but like around like 2008, like the director who, who just happened to be, you know, suffering from an illness uploaded like three scenes in, in the screenplay online. Um, and so like, sort of like uh, Jodorowsky's Dune, <laughs> the movie that never was like this movie became famous for not having me had fans, like, you know, people who are fans of the scenes in the screenplay and stuff like that. The story's being told by this character or this guy who played a character called the thin kid uh, in the movie. And it's sort of, the book is sort of presented as like his audiobook. <laughs> Like, yeah, it's not a huge spoiler. He lets you know, like, at some point during the story. But anyway, so it bounces back and forth between the making of the movie in 93, what happened sort of after, and then, like, him trying to get the movie rebooted or remade. And, like, because I was like, well, actually, Kevin, I didn't really do much of this, but in my other books, I like to do some typographical stuff. So I actually include the whole screenplay of the original movie. It's, like, intercut through through the book. Rad. Um, it's definitely disturbing. <laughs> uh, hopefully it's fun. I think it's a mix of, like... A, a mix of a disturbing movie with a little bit of like Hollywood tell all satire. Uh, it definitely fictionalizes some Hollywood experience and not just, you know, the movie that got made obviously for me, but like just stories from other writer friends and other conversations I've had with producers. That's awesome. I mean, it's not really like, boring. <laughs> no, it sounds great. Like cursed movie stuff is so interesting. We talked about, like we, we've covered the exorcist, which obviously did get made. Um, but you know, famously there's all this stuff yeah. around the making of that, that it seemed like it was cursed and, um well, i'm blair always witch curious too. about I, I i have a few friends who worked on blair witch way back when and uh just hearing their stories and how you know everyone was convinced this was possibly real back yeah. then and like how that can kind of spin into its own thing I, you know i love yeah. a, i love a, a story that kind of is drawing attention to itself in the way that it's like we're talking about a movie within a store within a right. book and the way that you can kind of connect all the the like-minded people with like their love of you know different 
mediums and, and just like different subgenres and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, this is reminding me that I didn't get to ask you one of the things uh, I meant to. So I'm just going to ask you now because whatever, it's my podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Um, ambiguous endings is something that I at Seton Hill, you came and uh, gave like a little presentation slash class about ambiguity and, and why it's important to you and how you think it works and, <laughs> and everything. And um, yeah, I want to I wanted to he just hear your thoughts on that. Like, why? Why do ambiguity? Like, what does it what draws you to it? Because I've noticed that it is something that seems like you 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 come back to. Yeah. And I think in that class, we talk about the thing and, and sort of the famously ambiguous ending of that. Well, I mean, part of it was like, I think, like, write what you know is horrible writing advice, obviously. <laughs> but like, but like, lean into your obsessions, write what you're obsessed about is good writing advice. Um, I, I figured out like somewhere along the way, it's like, oh, I really do like <laughs> ambiguous stuff. I, I think I'm drawn to it because, I mean, it feels like our everyday lives, especially sort of now in the misinformation sort of universe that we live in, what's true, what's not true, like just even our own memories, our identities are so much more malleable than when we were growing up as kids, we're brought up to think that the, all that stuff was. Um, and as a horror writer, it's like, you know, that unsure footing is like, I mean, to me, that's like, you can do so much with that um, in a horror story. You know, so the hard part is, and I really, you know, whether I succeed or fail, I mean, I, I can't say, but I can, I can promise that if I do use ambiguity, I try not to make it like it's a cheap Twilight Zone sort of ending. It has to be part and parcel of the theme. It has to be like the why of the story and really hopefully the source of the horror. To me, in A Head Full of Ghosts, if it's scary at all, to me, the scariest part is that we just don't know. You know, I want a cabin to brush up against that too. Um, because anytime you brush up with something, it's like, I feel like subconsciously, if you're reading a horror story where it's like, hey, we don't know for sure, I think that picks at like the ultimate ambiguity that awaits us all, not to get like too dark or too mm. layered barren, but like, you know, we don't know what's going to happen like at the end. Like we have beliefs, we, we think we know what's going to happen, but we don't know. And like, why not sort of like siphon off some of that anxiety for a story? Uh, but like I said, it has to, it just can't be there as like, oh, a twist at the end, like that really annoys me. It has to be there for like a greater purpose beyond that. Love that stuff. I, it's <laughs> it's something that I find super inspiring. And honestly, I, I remember taking away from that class just how much I, I also love ambiguous hinting. So I'm always thinking yeah. about it now because they're hard to nail. They really are. And you do it so well. Uh, it's something to aspire to. I appreciate it. Well, the kind of fun part now that I've, that I've written like a, a bunch of books, like... <laughs> Some of my more recent books, and I won't say which ones, I mean, definitely play with the ambiguity, but I, I think by the end, they kind of answer the question. But be, because my people have read other books, like, oh, I still don't know, which is kind of fun, because I feel mm. like for, for some people, uh, the expectation is that there is going to be ambiguity. So that's kind of fun to <laughs> to play with, too, anyway. And because we talk about this kind of stuff all the time, I always find that those are the most fun conversations to have with your friends and, and other people, right? Is like sitting down after a movie and kind of like hashing yeah. out where everyone's at and what they thought it meant is so much more interesting to me than like, and horror is a great way to to express this and explore that because there are so many genres where it's like the bow has to be wrapped up at the end and it has to fit within yeah. the parameters. Um, and I love that, like, you know, a lot of these horror films lead us down these really convoluted and and um, thought provoking territories and paths. Yeah. I mean, I guess there's just like, well, I, there's two types of people, people who want like the bow and the people who want to have that. Like, I don't understand why that conversation or even just yourself thinking about it. That's not the fun part. Um, but anyway. <laughs> Well, this was a very fun conversation. So thank you so much for joining us, Paul, to talk about uh, Knock at the Cabin and Cabin at the End of the World. 
um you know I, I it's been such a delight to talk to you so thank you so much no thank you guys this was this was a blast i appreciate it yeah thanks paul and we look forward to you know possibly covering more of your work in the future for the podcast and if people wanted to where can they find you on social media sure so i think i'm most active uh on instagram at paul g tremblay i i, I still am on x twitter whatever you want to call it with the same handle i'm on blue sky now too embarrassingly i thought it was blue ski when i first saw it like <laughs> like it was someone's name i don't know oh no it's a, a blue sky uh but yeah we'll, we'll go with those three places everybody should check out paul's books if, if this uh interview hasn't convinced you of that i don't know how else to do it uh and thanks uh, so much for coming on thanks so if you're on YouTube, make sure to like this video, subscribe, uh, comment, let us know what you thought of uh, Knock at the Cabin, Cabin at the End of the World. We'd love to hear from you. And if you are listening on a uh, podcasting platform, make sure to leave us a rating and review and let us know uh, what you thought of this episode. And be sure to connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of those at Ink to Film. And if you'd like to support this podcast another way, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Ink to Film, where we uh, release bonus episodes, including our most recent one where we talk about our deliberations for our upcoming 300th episode, where we're going to do that Hall of Fame induction, which, yeah, that's next up. So um, we, we hope you come back next week for that because uh, we're really excited about it. Yeah, I can't wait to to jump into these movies. We, we each have three that we're watching. I've only watched one of them but i can't wait to kind of get into this deliberation and see you know paul tremblay mentioned jaws and that was actually on our on our list but that got cut for the six that remain so if you want to <laughs> if you want to know more about some of the ones that are still out there check out that patreon episode and then tune back in next week for our 300th episode where we're going to narrow it down to just three yeah it's going to be really tough um but you know i'm looking forward to it this conversation i think was a good primer just for thinking about what makes good adaptations what what uh makes great ones you know yeah. that's that's really what it's about so until next time keep adapting <laughs>